Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, tell your neighbor, God is great, God is good, and we're going to thank him for the food, which is the word of God that is coming. <laughs> That's right, and this is the best kind of food, and doesn't have the calories, right? The war. So it is my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, and it is Pastor Miguel. He originally hails from California, and we're still going to let him come up anyway, and he moved to Alaska eight years ago to pastor the South Anchorage Church of God of Prophecy, which is the church that meets here in this building. And um, it's a bilingual church with Spanish and English. And I was trying to remember, I think I met you prior because you came up on a mission trip up here. And then him and one of the um, kind of the youth, older youth girls and youth leaders fell in love and then they got married and he came here. So his wife, Yuritza, they've been married for 11 years. They have two children, Miguelito, little Miguel is six years old, and Sophia, who just recently turned one. He has a side hustle, as many of us pastors do. He's an accountant on the side, and he also does a lot of translating for other churches and services and special events. So I believe today's docket is preaching here, preaching your service, and then translating for another service uh, later on this evening. So I've asked him to preach in Spanish so we can be more prepared to speak to our Peru team when they get back, and I'll translate. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, he, he likes reading and eating and eating and reading, and he loves quiet walks on the beach. Just kidding. He didn't say that. Um, but he does love the Lord. He loves God's people, and he loves God's word. So I'm very glad to have him share God's word today. So join me in welcoming Pastor Miguel Lopez. Abran sus Biblias, por <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's go to the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 21. Thank you for that. Um, no joke, uh, when uh, we were talking about introductions, I told uh, Pastor Janie that she could just say, that fool Miguel is going to preach today. So, And we say that fool because that's how we grew up talking in California, right? When you're Mexican, it's just this fool, that fool, hey fool. Uh, you walk in a Best Buy, hey fool, I want to buy a computer fool. Can I get one fool? And uh, so, uh, but Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to be on my best behavior today, and uh, um, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, 14 verses of God's word, uh, and I hope that I can communicate uh, the message clearly. The word of the Lord says, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us have his inheritance. 
And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, in your mighty name, we come to you, King of the universe, Heavenly Father. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be exalted. And so today, Lord God, we desire to hear your word. We desire to hear you speak to your people. Lord, I ask for clarity of mind and simpleness in explanation to your people, that your word may be heard clearly but that it may also go forth boldly and touch on our lives in the way that you have intended it to do so today. In your mighty name, I pray this. Amen and amen. Jesus is speaking on his authority. Uh, Just a few episodes before, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, we see that Jesus comes into the temple and he is asked a question about his authority. Who are you to speak the way that you speak? Who are you to teach us the things that you are teaching us? Who do you, you Galilean, you who comes from an area in Palestine, back then it was called Palestine, nobody come after me for that, um, an area in Palestine that is no good. Kind of like, you know, the United States has California, nothing good ever comes out of California, yet we're still this morning listening to a Californian. How dare you, is the question that these chief priests, that the Pharisees, that the scribes are asking of Jesus. How dare you? With what authority do you come and speak to us in? And Jesus gives them a very interesting answer. He says, well, I'm going to answer your question with a question. What authority did John the Baptist have? Did his authority come from heaven, from God, or did his authority come from men? And they, you know, I Right now, I'm teaching a, a Bible class um, on Mondays uh, to people in California. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're all youngins. They're all future pastors and, and leaders in the church. And um, uh, for whatever reason, God has uh, um, allowed me to be able to sort of influence them. And the, the, the annoying part is you ask them questions, and every every one of those students answers questions like you would expect students to answer. They don't want to give you the wrong answer, even though they know the right answer, but they're afraid because of the way that you're posing the question maybe that if they say the right answer, you're going to be like, oh, no, but what about this? So the other day I asked them, so was Abraham saved the same way that we are saved? The answer is obviously yes, right? Amen. Abraham was saved the same way we are saved. We are saved by faith. Amen. Amen. And that's how Abraham was saved. His faith was counted as righteousness to him. So that's what I was teaching them. And I'm like, so is Abraham saved the same way that we're saved? And the answer was, depends. And I thought, ah, ah, 
students, man, students, they know, I know they know the answer, but they just don't want to say it out loud because they don't want to be wrong. And here these guys, they're asked this question, where does John's authority come from? And, you know, they don't want to be wrong, even though they know the right answer. They know where John's authority comes from. But they're not going to play Jesus' game. So they look at Jesus and say, well, we don't know. Well, if you can't answer my question, says Jesus, I'm not going to answer yours. But on top of that, so, so, so all right, so um, we, we talk about salts on wounds, right? So Jesus just wounded them, just wounded their honor in public. But now Jesus doesn't just wound their honor in public. See, too many times we have this image of Jesus like he's the sixth member of NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys, right? Uh, this, this Jesus who is like, you know, he's... Uh, He's, he's, all, he's so loving, he's so loving that he's, he, he cradles you at night and he sings to you, you know, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love. That's the, that's the image of Jesus that we have. And, and that's the image of Jesus that's popularized, particularly in, in our culture, the Western culture. Um, and what's interesting to me is that we avoid speaking of this, this Jesus that we're about to get into right now, who not only wounds the ego of the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes, but he picks up a little bit of salt and he rubs it into the wound that he just made. Okay? This is the Jesus that we don't like to talk about, but we're going to for, I don't know, until Jane takes the mic away from me. After giving them this answer, I'm not going to answer your question because you can't answer mine. Jesus starts shooting off a bunch of parables. And one parable, the parable right before this one, Jesus tells them that there were two children, the older and the younger. And the older one was told, hey, by his father, hey, go to the vineyard today because I, I, I need someone to work. And the older son says, no, I'm not going. But then he ended up going. And he ended up working a full day's shift. And he goes to, his, uh, to the second son and he says, hey, go, go to the vineyard today and, and, and work for me. And the son says, yeah, I'm going to go. But the son never shows up, right? How, how many of you parents know, know that situation? You know, that son that tells you, yeah, I'm going to show up, dad, and I'm going to take you to, I don't know, what stories do you guys go to? I go to Red Apple. So, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Costco? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I'm going to take you to Costco. And the and the kid never shows up. But here comes the son that you least, or the daughter that you least expect. They show up, and they, they're the ones that are taking you to Costco. And you're like, what's going on here? Right? So then Jesus says, you guys, who, who, who fulfilled the, the commandment of this father? The one that said he wasn't going to go but ended up going? Or the one that said he would go but ended up not going? And, of course, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes are like, hey, you know what? The one that said he wouldn't go, but he ended up going. Exactly. So Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, you guys are the ones that said you would show up, but you didn't show up. Whereas the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all these other people that you have categorized as sinners undeserving of God's grace, those are the ones that did show up when John the Baptist preached his message. So, who has done the will of the Father? And that is the question that we continue to wrestle with as we come into this portion of the Scripture. You see, when Jesus brings up the vineyard, 
he is bringing up imagery that these Pharisees, chief priests, and um, uh, scribes are very familiar with. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, you don't have to go there. It describes Israel as a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. I'm I'm actually reading from the Bible. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed it out of a out a wine uh, that in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He's quoting. He, Jesus is making this reference to this vineyard, which the Lord has taken great care to nourish it. He protects it. He builds walls around it. So that no one can come along and destroy whatever's been planted there. He, 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 he digs a wine vat in it. So that it would be productive and it would be self-sustaining. He builds a watchtower. So in case there are any enemy troops that are coming miles off, we can call up an army and defend this vineyard. The Lord cares for this vineyard. This vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 is Israel itself. This vineyard in Matthew 21 is Israel itself. But this Lord, this Lord who created this vineyard, this Lord that has uh, uh, built a wall around the vineyard, built a watchtower, built a wine press in the middle of his vineyard, now gives it over to tenants, the religious leaders themselves, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes. He gives them the care of this vineyard. They are supposed to work the vineyard so that the vineyard will produce its fruits. And then when the master comes to collect his fruit, to collect his portion of the fruit, they have something to present to him. But instead of giving up their portion of the fruit, the servant comes to ask and require the fruit. And what do they do? They, they, they kill that servant. And the tenants took his servant, says verse 35, and beat one. They gave him the beating of a lifetime. Reminds me of a testimony, my youngest brother. My youngest brother is um, lost. Pray for him. Uh, he's a, he lives in Bakersfield, California. And I know every time, if you know California, you hear Bakersfield, you almost immediately hear moon right behind that. Right? But... He's in Bakersfield, California, and he is hanging out with the wrong scene. He is your typical Mexican cholito, you know, with the, you know, the, the, the teardrop and the buttoned-up shirt and unbuttoned. You know, he, that's him. And when I read this verse, I remember what he told me one time where he, 
he was walking into a club and he saw that there was four guys jumping one guy and he was like, should I go or should I not? Should I go or should I not? And then he says that he actually prayed. He's like, Lord, what do I do here? Should I go and I, should I help this person? Should, what do I do in this situation? Four guys beating one down. And he says that the Lord, this is him, okay? He says that the Lord finally answered and he said, and Miguel, the five of us gave that guy a beating that you wouldn't believe. That's what happened to this first servant. But then the second one comes and he is killed. And the third one comes and he is stoned. We don't know if he was stoned to death or if he was just stoned to the point of being severely beaten like the first one. But then again, it doesn't matter because this is a parable and these people didn't really exist. So then verse 36 Again, he sent other servants. Who are the servants? These are the prophets. These are the prophets of the Old Testament. God has given his law to his people. That is the wall of protection. That is the watchtower. That is the wine press. His law. And along come the prophets. And too many times in our Pentecostal movement, because we view prophecy as exclusively talking about future events, we lose the essence of what the prophetic word is in the Old Testament. The prophetic word is an analysis of the past. Believe it or not, most of the time, the prophets in the Old Testament aren't looking forward. They're looking backward. They're looking to the past, to the unfaithfulness of Israel to its God. And they're saying, hey, you guys made a covenant with God. You guys made a contract. See, we say covenant because it sounds all super religious and it makes them feel all real Christian-y. Well, let me give you the legal term that is most closely associated with the word covenant in our culture. It's a contract. You guys made a contract with the one true living God. You're not living up to it. I, the prophet, am here as a lawyer to remind you that there is litigation going to be brought against you if you do not begin to fulfill and uphold the end of your covenant, of your contract. But what do they do to these lawyers? What do they do to these litigators? What do they do to these prophets? They kill them. They beat them. They stone them. And in verse 37, the man has had enough. The owner of the vineyard has had enough. And he says, finally, I will send my son to them, saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. These these folks, it's completely and entirely possible that these folks see the son coming. And because they see the son coming, they think it's possible that they thought, If the son is coming to collect the rent, it could possibly mean that daddy's died. So if we kill the son, the only son, if we kill him, guess who gets to keep the vineyard? We do. It's our vineyard. It belongs to us. Too many times, I'm sorry to say, I feel like we treat our Christianity Much the same way. It's ours. It belongs to me. God has given it to me. When we don't realize that, yes, he has given it to us, but it is a gift. A gift that we will not lose. A gift that can be shared and is intended to be shared. 
A gift that is intended for the vineyard to grow and to continue to produce its fruit so that the Lord of that vineyard will get what is due to him. Amen. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, we're going to kill him. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Jesus has already prophesied on three occasions to his disciples when the time comes I will be taken by the priests. I will be taken by the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. And I will be crucified. I will be killed. Peter even gets gets in front of Jesus' face and is like, don't say that, okay? Stop. You don't know how many times I've encountered this in my Christian walk where I'm like, man, my head hurts. Stop declaring that, okay? Stop it. Stop declaring that. I'm like, dude, chill. My head just hurts. Calm down. Your words have power. Okay. (laughs) And this, this is what Jesus says to that, because that's Matthew's attitude. Stop saying that. Don't you dare declare that because your words have power. You know what? Let me, let me just uh, do something here. Let me just do something here. I, every, every once in a while, preachers, when, when they're preaching, they, they come to a point in their sermon where they know they have to confront something Uh, And here's what I feel I have to confront right now. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now check this out. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who believed? In this context, Abraham, right? Abraham believed. And he believed the God who had created him. And what does it say then about this God who Abraham believed? He is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Who calls into existence the things that do not exist? God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Amen? In the beginning, oh my goodness, I'm drawing a blank. I'm remembering them in Spanish. Sorry, guys. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the word was formless and without void. And then God said, let there be light, because he's the only one that can call something that does not exist into existence. Who's the one that does that? I Believe me, Janie knows this. I'm a hardcore Pentecostal. That's the only reason. That's the only reason I get along so well with Maranatha. That's the reason why Sister Janie is uh, the long-lost older sister to my wife that we didn't even know existed. That's why Luke is the long-lost older brother to myself that I didn't even know existed until we moved up here. Okay? But we need to come back to this idea. That the one in charge, the one that's sovereign, the one that is in control of all things in whom we live and breathe and have our being is God himself. So when Peter confronts Jesus and says, don't you say that, Jesus. Don't you say that you're going to be killed. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind. Oh, man, you guys read your Bibles. Yes. (sighs) Get behind me, Satan. Wow, because it is necessary 
for me to suffer these things. Do you want to have life and life in abundance? It is necessary for me to suffer these things. I must go through this so that you and God can be at one in relationship and have everlasting life in him. That's what's necessary. That's what's necessary. I read this story, and as I read this story, I come to the many times throughout my Christian walk where I believed wrongly that the reason that Jesus Christ came and shed his blood on the cross and died for my sins was because he looked at me and he said, oh, Miguel is so valuable. He has so much to offer my kingdom. And I realize now that that was never the case. He died for me. Because I had no value. I was an angry kid living in central California. I was that kid that would make fun of the biggest gangbanger or football player, whatever you may have. And they would start punching me in the face because I would make fun of how dumb they were because the Lord had given me a little bit of intelligence, and then when they would punch me and beat me to a pulp, I'd still get up and say, man, my sister, I don't even have a sister, my sister hits harder than you, and then they'd come back and do it all over again. I don't know what I was looking for. I was just angry. I had no value. But then this Christ of glory, I'm sorry, I'm a crybaby. Then this Christ of glory, he sees the situation of his vineyard. And he sends his son. God sends his son. And he knows that his son is going to die. And he does it anyway. Out of love. So the question then becomes, from Jesus to the Pharisees, to the chief priest, to the scribes, in verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Man, I'm having flashbacks right now to Nathan confronting David, right? What do you think should be done to this man that took this sheep and ate it even though he had all these other sheep? And David is so enraged that he rips his royal garments and says, bring me that man, I'm going to kill him. And then Nathan goes, that's you. And Jesus said, uh, and what do these guys say when Jesus asks the question? What should be done to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Remember, Jesus has just talked about the older son and the younger son. The older son who says, I'm not going to go to work in your vineyard. Okay? The younger son who says, I will go. But they do the opposite of what their words expressed. Okay? And Jesus makes it clear that in that first parable, the older children are those prostitutes, are those tax collectors, are those sinners. They are doing God's will. They are doing God's will. And here is the thing. You cannot serve a holy God without recognizing your condition first. I cannot serve a holy God without recognizing my condition first. 
we must recognize that we are human beings with our faults and with our struggles. We must recognize that we have incapabilities. We must recognize that, oh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is not intended for you to go and score an extra touchdown. It doesn't mean I get to watch, I get to start praying over my TV when I'm watching, you know, Argentina versus France. You guys don't know about the real football, right? You guys are <laughs> the real football. It doesn't mean that I look at my TV and I go, come on, Messi. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He can do all things. That's not what it means. Paul says, you know, a few years ago, I gave up on what I call cliche Christianity. And cliche Christianity is this Christianity that depends on supposedly thought through lines to help sustain you in your day-to-day walk of faith. So let me give you an example, right? So when I was moving up to Alaska, I, I still believed in that kind of Christianity when I moved up to Alaska eight years ago. Everybody, all my friends and family in California who were seeing me off, you know, oh, when God gives the vision, he'll give you the provision. Meaning you're, you're never going to be broke, right? right? Well, what does Paul say? He says, you know, there have been times where I've had plenty. There are times where I've been starving. But you know what? That's where it comes in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where it comes in. What are we doing for the kingdom? Are we suffering for the kingdom? We can do it. We will be strengthened. Is it going okay for the kingdom? Good. You can walk through that. You have the strength to go through it. So Jesus looks at these folks, and they have themselves pronounced their own conviction. Put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them him the fruits in their season. Who are these other tenants? Go back to that parable that we were just talking about. Those prostitutes those tax collectors, those sinners, those are the new tenants. God has taken the spiritual leadership from these chief priests and Pharisees and scribes and given it to the rabble. He's given it to common people. Common people that when they are touched by a holy God, they become uncommon. One of the most beautiful scenarios in Isaiah is when that seraphim takes the, that, 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 uh, that burning coal and he touches Isaiah's tongue with it. Because what Isaiah said was true. I am a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of people of unclean lips. It was not a lie. It was not an exaggeration. It was the truth. And the way that things worked, according to the law in Leviticus, is if something unclean touched something that was clean, the thing that was clean would become unclean. But here's this God who's merciful and takes this holy thing and touches an unclean lip. 
And instead of the unclean lips contaminating that which is holy, that which is holy contaminates that which is unclean. That is the mercy and the grace of God on our lives. But why? Why do we see this grace? Why do we see this mercy? Why do we see this love? Why do we see this provision for us who were unworthy of it? Why? Why is it that now we have been given such a great privilege? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you guys read that in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23? Psalm 118 is about the people of Israel. And some people think that David, when he might have written it, was writing it about himself too. Look at all the nations of the world. Why does God choose Israel, which is so small? Is it because there was something grandiose or marvelous in the people of Israel? No, it's because they were so small. It's because they were so insignificant. Now think of David. David is this young kid, skinny to the bone. He is, there's nothing impressive about him. He's about to replace this king named Saul, who, the, who when he is selected as king, that's exactly why he was chosen, because he's the opposite of David. He has the good looks. He has the character. He has the charisma. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That which men look upon and say, this is worth nothing. The Lord says, no, I'm going to use that for my honor. I'm going to use that for my glory. This was the Lord's doing. And is it not marvelous in your eyes? You look at these people, you chief priests, Pharisees, and scribes. You see them as nothing. But now the Lord, I am the cornerstone. And you are rejecting me. And now what's going to happen is that that which you have rejected will now become the principal stone of the building. And it is marvelous in the eyes of God's people. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I don't think I need to explain that. (laughs) When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they repented and they stopped trying to kill Jesus and they decided to follow him. Oh, no, no, that's not what it says. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. These people are not scared of God. These people are scared of the people. And when in your Christian walk, you fear people more than you fear God, you are in a dangerous place. I just got here to Anchorage. I had just gotten here to Anchorage. Sorry, I'm Mexican. I need to think about my phrasing. I had just gotten here to Anchorage. And there was a situation going on in the political realm, right? Something to do with bathrooms. How many of you remember that? Yeah? 
Yeah? And we had petitions out there. And we had some petitions out there in the fellowship hall. And we asked as many people as would, please, if you're registered to vote, go and sign this petition so that we can, you know, make sure that, that this is repealed, that this doesn't happen, and all this other stuff. The amount of young people in our congregation that headed for those doors so they didn't have to go that way. Young people who had been raised in church, who had heard the truth of the gospel Sunday after Sunday, it was astonishing. And it was concerning. When you fear God more than you fear men, you are in a dangerous place in your Christian walk. Other way around, yeah. I told you I was Mexican. You should be happy I'm just speaking English. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. They didn't think that Jesus had any authority. They were just afraid that the people thought that he had authority. And yet, and yet, this seems like a very pessimistic passage. And yet it is filled with so much hope for us when we know the whole story of the Bible. When we don't just stop at this point in the book. We continue to read on. And we grasp the whole history of events. We see that it is a story that is actually not filled with an ultimatum only and exclusively, but it is filled with hope for the future. Why? In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, I don't know, even know why I'm flipping through my Bible. It's my Spanish Bible, and I just realized that when I came up to the pulpit. But if you go to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, I want you to notice that Peter is speaking to the exact same crowd under the anointing of the Holy Spirit And after he preaches the gospel to them under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice the reaction of some of the people in this exact same crowd. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off every one of whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Yes, Jesus is giving them an ultimatum here. But his intention is not to condemn them outright, but to call them to repentance. And guess what? Some of them come to repentance. We even see this in Acts chapter 6. Just flip your Bibles a few pages forward. Acts chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These people who are receiving this apparent condemnation in Matthew chapter 21, in Acts chapter 6, are finally receiving God's grace, are finally being put into the vineyard to give the fruit of the vineyard in the right way, in the way that God orders them to. 
and it is a wonderful thing. You see, the reason for all of this is because in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean to be weak? What does it mean to be ungodly? Verse 10, for while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we don't like to think that way, but that's exactly what we were, B.C. B.C., you and I were enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were enemies, but not no more. We have God's grace all day, er day. Not every day, er day, that's more. We have God's grace. And I want to finish with this thought. As I think of Pastor Luke and the team that went to Peru, the work that they accomplished and even now are still accomplishing, the work that you and I have set for us by God here in this city, in this state. As I think about those things, and I think about how Jesus' authority was challenged here in this passage of Scripture. I talked about how Jesus wounds the ego of the chief priests, of the Pharisees, and of the scribes. And then he takes salt and puts it on the wound. Amen? But here's what I probably should have also mentioned. Salt doesn't on the wound doesn't just hurt. It heals. And Jesus confronts this challenge to his authority by his death and his resurrection. And when he rises from the dead, there is no doubt of his authority anymore. At least there shouldn't be. See, we're very good at quoting Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And 20. We all know it by heart. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But we forget that verses 19 and 20 come directly from verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why you're going to go. You're going to go to Peru. That's why you're going to go to the Philippines. That's why you're going to go to all the ends of the earth. That's why you're going to go down the street. That's why you're going to go all the way out to east side. That's why you're going to go to wherever I send you because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now the challenge for us is this. We must meditate and we must think 
where have I stood in the way of God's authority? Where have I challenged God's authority in my life? Where have I challenged God's authority in the church? Where have I challenged God's authority in my existence? And when we find those areas, not be prideful, not be like a lot of these priests and Pharisees and scribes. No, no. Let's be like those priests, Pharisees and scribes in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 2, where we break down and say, what must I do? Lord, have it all. Every aspect of my life, have it all. It's all yours. When I became a pastor, and I leave you with this thought, when I became a pastor 12 years ago, 12 years ago, I was ordered to go to a church in Fresno, California. I come from a very rigid denominational structure, uh, and I'm still serving in that. Um, I know that Maranatha is independent, and believe me, I don't care, okay? Let me just make that abundantly clear from the beginning. You are my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and that's all I care about. Amen? Amen? We good? All right. I was ordered to go to a church in Fresno, California, which I did. And when you're a young pastor, I don't know if anybody knows this, but you can tend to say a lot of dumb things. I remember one of the dumb things that I said was, the gospel is no good if a person is still hungry for a sandwich. You know, this whole idea of, you know, we have to impact the community in such a way that we're making sure that we feed them. And if your congregation, let me be very clear about this, if your congregation has that capability, do so. Please, go for it. I'm not putting any, but here's what I'm trying to get at, okay? December 24th, 2023. I start having problems and I, I can't breathe. In COVID times, how many of you remember the COVID times? They, they, they would put a oxygen monitor thing on your finger, right? And if it fell under 18, you had to go to the hospital. If it fell under 15, they'd, they'd tube you up. When they put that oxygen monitor on me, I was at six. No wonder I couldn't breathe, right? I was going through what's called diabetic ketoacidosis. There was a lack of oxygen in my blood. So what was happening is that carbon monoxide was filling my veins and was poisoning me. After I'm admitted to the ER, I get admitted like 18 hours later to the ICU. Most patients with diabetic ketoacidosis are released from the hospital within 24 hours. I was in the hospital for 72. But that next day, Brother Damon, Pastor Damon, showed up to the hospital to visit me. My body needed a sandwich. Literally. I hadn't eaten in three days. My body needed a sandwich. My body needed some water. But when Pastor Damien grabbed my hand and my wife grabbed my hand, 
And they grabbed one another's hands and we started praying. I knew that if I died, I knew that if I crossed over into eternity, I would be there for what to me would have seemed, would have seemed like moments. And then I would have eventually seen Damien there as well. I would have eventually seen my wife there. I would have seen my kids there. I knew that. Why? Because the power of the gospel is so much more greater than a sandwich. Because the power of the gospel is so much greater than anything that has been offered to man. And we go in his authority. So I beg you, do not challenge God's authority. No. No, recognize that the gift that you've been given, the gift of reconciliation, oh, hallelujah, is the greatest gift that man has ever known. And it is still available to all today. Maybe you've forgotten it. Maybe you've gotten so, so high and mighty in your Christian walk. Maybe you're like one of some of those conference speakers that I encounter every once in a while that make me gag. I'm sorry that I'm being so blunt, but I, I survived the hospital. I survived death, okay? Uh, that walk into a conference and grab the mic and go, yeah, the devil doesn't like it when I pray because things happen when I pray. Okay, dude, shut up. Get off. Maybe that's become you. Stop it. And humble yourself before the God that has saved you. Humble yourself before the God that has redeemed you and that has given you new life. And that has given us a mission so that when we come to the end of that mission, he can look us straight in the eye and say, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your Lord. Amen. I don't know if anyone here has felt or can recognize or can admit I have challenged God's authority. I have not been living the way that God requires of me. Recall those famous words that Pastor Luke always says. God wants more than just your happiness. He wants your wholeness. This altar is now open for anyone who would say, I want some more of that holiness in my life. I want some more of that obedience. I want to recognize, God, there are areas in my life that I've rebelled against you that I have stood against your authority. But remind me today that I am a reconciled child to the Father. This altar is open for anyone who would come. And if no one comes, that's cool. We're praying for you anyway. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask you today that the works that we do that the gospel mission in which we are engaged not just be a gospel mission of ideas and ideals, not just be a gospel of philosophies and different, different abstract ideas that we like to submit ourselves to, but rather that it would be the reconciling power of God, that of which Paul said I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Oh, Lord, help us to be submissive. Help us, Lord God, to submit to that authority that has been given in all heaven and all earth. 
to walk in paths of righteousness, to seek you, to follow you, and follow your direction. Oh, Lord, that we would be so transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit that when our pastor returns to this congregation, he will find a body that is willing, that is willing to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit guides him. Oh, Heavenly Father, be with us today and help us see that a lot of our own issues and even issues at a church level are only because there are things that we have not completely submitted to you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son, and thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with us and just take in the word. Thank you, Pastor Miguel, for sharing. Maybe you have a conviction upon your heart and you just need to come and lay it out before the Lord. Maybe it's just falling deeper in love with the Lord and just taking time to spend with him. That sandwich can wait after service, right? We want to just feast on that word and take it in and respond accordingly right now. So as Pastor said, the altars are open as we sing this together. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Pure hearts, let us not lift our souls to another. See, we bow. We bow our hearts, we bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Give us pure Give us clean hands, 
We thank you, God, that you are great, that you are good, Lord, that you are the Almighty. May we have on our hearts and our minds today as we leave this place to put you first and to care more about you and your thoughts upon us and the thoughts of who you are more than what men may say or think. Lord, that we would be people that know your word and know the truth. And God, that just as we sang that we would have clean hands and pure hearts and that we'd worship you and only you. May we be a strong and bold church for your glory, Lord. We praise you again and again for your goodness and your greatness, Lord. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May you go in God's grace and goodness today. Thank you again, Pastor Miguel, for coming and sharing the word. And uh, must I say it, go Chiefs. There we go. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.